Uh, next on the agenda, we've got uh, integrity in the marketplace, and uh, we're privileged to have Hank Miltonberger speak to us. Hank? Thank you. You know, uh, watching Gail's high-tech presentation, I remember something we used to say when I played soccer. If you can't be good, look good. And if you can't look good, look colorful. So I want to thank Gail for a colorful presentation. <laughs> I, you guys have to know that um, it's not his fault. He's from Georgia. And then down in Louisiana, where I'm from, uh, we can help, you know, every now and then make, make a little fun of the folks from Georgia. Y'all probably heard about the fellow from Georgia who went up to New York went to work on a high-rise building, and this is pretty typical for those guys. Uh, he's up there with an Englishman and a Jew, and uh, every day at lunch, they sit down about 30 stories up and open their uh, lunch pails, and the Englishman opened it up finally one day and said, Blimey, every day the same lunch, day in, day out, never a change. She always makes me the same lunch. I beg her, she won't change, always the same lunch. The Jew opens up his... He goes, oi, always the same, never a difference, never anything that I might like. I beg her, she won't change either. Fell from Georgia, goes, dang, peanut butter and jelly again, every day. I don't know why. And the Englishman says, if she gives me this tomorrow, I'm going to jump off this building. The Jew says, I will too. Fell from Georgia, says, me too. So the next day, they get up there, the Englishman opens it up, and he goes, Oh, no. He stands up and jumps. <laughs> Jew opens his up. Oi, I begged her. He jumps, fell from Georgia. Not me, too. And he jumps. So they're at the funeral, and the foreman's there. And there's a lot of folks there, and the three wives are there, and the foreman, after he you know, pays his respects at the coffins, he goes to the three women. He says, y'all make me sick. He says, you knew these men didn't want to have the same lunch every day. I, I know that the, they must have begged you. Uh, you had to know this was going to happen. He looks at the English lady and says, why would you continue to give them the same lunch? She says, it's the proper thing to serve. Then he looks at the Jewish wife and he says, why you? It's always on sale. <laughs> Sorry. Then she looks at the, the little gal from Georgia. He says, what's your excuse? She says, I don't know. He makes his own lunch. <laughs> oh, integrity in the marketplace. It said that uh, the key verse in Psalm 70 is that he shepherd, David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. And guided them with his skillful hands. God's complimenting him. And he comes back later. And if we don't get it and tells his son, Solomon. And as for you, he says, if you will walk before me as your father David did. In integrity of heart. There it is again. And uprightness. Doing according to all that I have commanded you. Then all these things happen. We know that Jesus was a man of integrity. We know that. In the story of Job, we heard last night uh, uh, a little explanation that the, the issue before Job, as Job stated in, in 629, is my integrity 
is at stake. So um, what's the problem? It's so important. In fact, it's, it's not just something nice to have. I'm going to suggest to you it's absolutely critical. But why is so rare? Because really, things are so bad, you don't have to be that good to really look good nowadays. And that's the sad part. Uh, in America, employee theft is at $1 billion a week. Uh, asked the one thing they did this survey, and, and Americans asked the one thing they'd change about themselves if they could. Over half just said their weight. It's where their focus is. Uh, if there's one thing they could change about their lives, two-thirds said they'd, get, they'd have more money. 50% call in sick when they're well. For $10 million, 7% of Americans would kill a stranger. 25% would abandon their family, and 23% would become a prostitute or a pimp. Of course, $10 million is a lot of money. 20% of the gross national product is not reported to the IRS. 74% of Americans say they steal from those, they would steal from those who would not miss it. 64% say they lie when it suits them. Uh, 50% admitted that they waste the equivalent of a full day of work a week. Just wasted around the office. 53% admitted that they would cheat on their spouse. We heard about that last night. Uh, 30% will lie on their tax return, and that is a lie. It's a lot higher. <laughs> See, our culture has AIDS, Howard Hendricks says, acquired integrity deficiency syndrome. Our celebrities and leaders are mostly one-dimensional, and they don't have any character, the people that are held up to us. Uh, way back in 1920, Senator Ashurst of Arizona wrote to a colleague, the great trouble with you is that you refuse to be a demagogue you will not submerge your principles in order to get yourself elected. You must learn that there are times when a man in public life is compelled to rise above his principles. George Washington observed that few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. We need men of integrity right now who won't dissolve into the stream that is this uh, culture that we live in. And, uh, and most of us want a reputation of integrity. But they're not, we're just really not willing to take the risks or oftentimes pay the price that would come with earning that. Let me give you a little pop quiz. Teddy Roosevelt used to give it to his employees. He'd ask a fellow at his ranch after he was president if he would steal something from a neighboring ranch. They both had big spreads. The fellow thought about it and said, yes, Mr. President, I'll do that for you. And so Roosevelt fired him. And he said, uh, a man who steals from me will soon steal from me. And that's the truth. That was his quiz. But I'll ask you, and, and as we talk today, I'm gonna, sometimes when you do those surveys, you think, gosh, the country's that bad. Really encourage you to personalize this and to uh, think of your own situation as we talk about integrity. Think of your own work life and not other people. Uh, do you fudge on your income tax? Have you ever bought or sold an item at prices that did not reflect anything close to the value? You ever signed a contract because you knew it was unenforceable? And I've had employees sit across from me that uh, we were letting go say that uh, our covenant not to compete was not enforceable, so they were not going to abide by it. And I said, that's not the point, is it? I said, because I wouldn't sue you if it were enforceable. You know us. 
but now I would never do business with you. Have you ever sued another Christian? Uh, do you slander co-employees to help your own standing? By the way, if you ever do a little study in the scriptures on slander, it's interesting because a slander is not necessarily a lie. It is just something damaging to someone else. See, uh, Satan is a slanderer and he doesn't have to make stuff up about us because he's got enough real stuff that he can accuse us of. But do you do that? To exaggerate your firm's resources and its abilities. And it was interesting, I was thinking as, as Gail uh, uh, was talking this morning, if Jesus said to you, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me, as he did the richer and you ruler. Right now, if he said that today, would you do it? I've thought about that one, and I'm, that's the, I don't know. That's a tough one. See, integrity is an epic battle of daily skirmishes. It's the little things. When you say, uh, I'll, I'll call you right back. I'll get it done today. We'll pray for you. Or my favorite, I tried to reach you. Uh, we just, we traffic in half-truths in our lives. And um, an excellent test for us, and, and I'll be honest with you, as I've, as I've walked with Jesus, the, the uh, Pharisees become less of a caricature for me. And I used to read that stuff, and it never had any stinking application to me personally. And more and more I'm convicted by the things that he accused them of. Because you need to understand that the Pharisees... Uh, were, for the most part, uh, not uh, full-time or vocational Christian workers. Uh, they were lay people with trades. Uh, they were supposedly really just like us, Christian leaders. They were leaders at their churches. They took the Bible seriously, and uh, they taught in their equivalent of Sunday school or whatever. But they were lay people. Turn to Matthew 23, and let's take let's finish our pop quiz there. And this is one of, I just never thought, it was just kind of quaint. And I'd kind of look at those guys and say, boy, they're, they're absurd. Matthew 23, and we're going to kind of, we're not going to read all of them because some of them are a little long. But uh, we'll walk through and, and to ask a few questions. Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. He said this to um, uh, the multitudes. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things, but they don't do them. Does your behavior match your teachings or what you say? And think not just, I'm going to tell you, a lot of us, we're all in full-time Christian work. Think both in your ministry and at the office or at work. You have principles that you espouse about caring about the customer. Then when it comes down to it, you charge more than you should, or you don't return funds when they overpay, or you give them shoddy work and you don't tell them about the flaws. Little hidden things. Is it true for you? Uh, do you exhort people to have daily quiet times and you don't have them yourself? Do you exhort people about quality 
and uh, you cut corners. Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others, it's the only thing. Okay, let's look at verse 4. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with as much as a finger. How can I tell you how the decisions I've made that have required some of my employees to stay at the office till 10, 11, 12 at night when I'm home? And the times that I have exhorted and challenged younger Christians and really, without realizing it, laid these huge heavy burdens and then walked off and didn't uh, encourage them, uh, did not uh, provide applications or tools or offer many times to even help. I think that's what he was accusing the Pharisees of. And it applies to me. And uh, Let's look at uh, verses 5 through 7. But they do their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. Who's your audience? Who's your audience? God or men? Uh, do you spiritualize conversation? Well, you know, make sure you make a point to say, but in my hour-long quiet time this morning, I saw this. Uh, I've even shared the gospel and in the back of my mind thinking, boy, I can't wait till I get there Friday to CBMC breakfast and tell the guys. All show. I tell you, if you ever been at church or someplace and, and you were involved in a project and or at CBMC and you worked hard on it and they recognized someone else and they didn't recognize you, did you resent it? Are you willing to serve without being recognized? Let's move on to question four. Uh, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men and you do not enter yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Uh, do I delight when others pass me up in their growth? I have a, a paraphrase of uh, the definition of a servant in my office. is becoming excited about making someone else successful. But are you excited when you help someone else and they get promoted and you don't? Does that, that light a fire into you? Or... Do you want to help them, but not quite so much that they move ahead of you? Have you ever resented someone who's really taking off in the Christian life? Or maybe not exposed to some truth because you wanted to have it so that you could share it? Um, I think that... Uh, have you ever actually even discouraged... Uh, there was a time, uh, I'll tell you, years ago in my marriage when Cheryl, was my wife, was really taking off. And I was started to get actually jealous of her uh, in, in, uh, in some subtle ways actually this is going back over 20 years ago discouraged her made fun of things because I resented the fact that she was passing me up hmm. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24 not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for joy we work for you in joy 
Do you delight when others pass you up? Mm. That's like Saturday Night Live, when that use old skit. That really hurts. I hate it when that happens. Uh, Matthew 23, uh, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about, uh, you, because you uh, travel about on the sea and the land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, uh, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. That one at first doesn't think, doesn't have the feel that it might have application. But are you molding people in your own image or in Christ? Do you allow the guys that you're working with and disciples and the people that work to develop their own convictions? Or do you argue them into your convictions? To make them in your image so that they agree with you on all points instead of giving them the freedom in Christ to become who Jesus wants them to be. And maybe their ministry won't look like your ministry. Maybe the job they do at work won't look like the job you do. Okay, let's look at verses uh, 23 and 24. This whole section actually is on this next topic, but I just picked two. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you have the t- <clears throat> for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Do you major on the majors? Because sometimes the little stuff is a lot easier to do. It's a lot easier to go to church than for me to love my wife. Do I never miss and then she withers under my criticism? Do you do in-depth Bible studies and know where to find verses, but you underpay your employees? Do kids cringe when you lose your temper? But you've got a lot of good advice and counsel for people on how to raise children. See, probably one of the things that in Scripture is the opposite of integrity is hypocrisy. And so actually the questions make real good application in the study of integrity when you look at the Pharisees. There's a couple more in number 7, uh, verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Are you pretending to be righteous and avoiding transparency? Hiding uh, things in your life that you don't think would make you look good. Nowadays, I can tell you, if you keep your sin profile low and you give a little money to the church, you're going to get to be a leader. That's all it really takes. Or as we say down, are you all show and no go? Like a Hollywood backdrop. You look good, but it's just a front. You think about our lives. And we want to be transparent at the appropriate times. At the appropriate times. You don't want to be a tree without roots. A person without any depth in his relationship to God. Because uh, you may look good, but you're not going to last. You're not going to last. And the last one, uh, in verse 30. 
and say, If we had been living the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Do you ever think that you're above certain sins? In arrogance, look down when someone else gets caught or really falls or really blows it and think, I'd never do that. Instead of, I could do that. There's a famous story uh, of a, of a um, Jewish guy who hunted down Nazis. And um, he caught this guy, I can't remember, Himmler, one of these really famous uh, um, Nazis. And he caught him and he was at the trial. And this guy was in the witness stand and they brought this German guy in. And when the German got really close to him and they looked each other in the eye, uh, the Jewish guy collapsed onto the ground. And, um, and years later, he was being interviewed on TV because it was kind of a famous scene. And they asked him, Dan, I think it was Dan Rath or something like that, asked him, he said, why did you collapse? Did you, was it just being confronted with the personification of all this evil? And the guy said, no. When I saw him up close, I realized it was just like me. Don't ever look down at a fallen saint. You're capable of the same thing. And remembering that is your best chance. Well, if, if integrity is so stinking important, what the heck is it? Uh, it is worthy of your meditation, I'll tell you that. Uh, first of all, it might be helpful to, to realize what it is not. It is not performance. Because performance can look good for a period of time. I tell you, um, I like to run these long distance events. Uh, I like marathons and things like that. And a lot of people look really good the first six miles. And you can keep it up. You can keep that pace up for a long time. Uh, but some of us older guys who understand that it's a long, long race, we pass them up later. Uh, we pass them up later because um, they look good for a while, but they do not have the training. They do not have the stamina, uh, the wherewithal to keep going. And so that's going to be the issue in our lives. It's not accuracy. That's what we get from Washington. Integrity is not accuracy. You know, we get the definition of is. Not managing the truth. And a tough one for me, having been a reformed lawyer, is it's not doing just what is legal. Legality has a connection with, but only a connection with morality and what is right. That's a discussion for another day. Uh, it's not pragmatism. Don't do it if it wouldn't look good on the front page of the paper, because nowadays you could do a whole lot of stuff that is it's appalling and looks great on the front page. Oh. And it's not just honesty. Spencer Johnson said, Integrity is telling myself the truth, and honesty is telling the truth to other people. A famous advertising pioneer, William Burnback, said, Honesty sells. The problem is, so does sex. So it's not pragmatism. Uh, it is integrity is not having good goals. I want to just work hard to earn enough money so I can give it to God's work. The means never justify. I mean, the end never justifies the means. Not meeting God halfway is not just having a good reputation. Jesus had no reputation. In fact, you may get a reputation as being a little flaky and foolish. It's not following God fully in most areas. 
Think about the uh, uh, Titanic, you know, it was unsinkable because they built the ship into these compartments and they said one can be breached and the ship won't sink. Well, it was just waiting for a big enough iceberg. And once that integrity was compromised to the appropriate level, it went down and 1,522 people lost their lives. Compartmentalization of sin is not going to carry the day. Uh, and many businessmen think uh, they make the same mistake that Bill Clinton did. And we're starting to see now that you cannot isolate sin in your life. The cracks will widen and spread. So don't try to compartmentalize your relationship with God. I think a really important part of integrity, and it'll make more sense if you write it down when we get to the end of this time, is what's the first thing you think of? When you think of yourself, how do you think of yourself? Uh, in the Old Testament, the word that is translated integrity is a word which means completeness, usually innocence, perfect, simplicity, upright. The root word, interestingly, is the thumen stone that they put in the high priest's breastplate. And uh, it was the emblem of complete truth, perfection, uh, without uh, flaw or crack. In the New Testament, the word means true as in not concealed. In other words, nothing hidden. What you see is what you get. It's incorruptible. In other words, it can't be corrupted. It's pure. It's refined. Uh, there's no corruption in it, so there's no way for the corruption to get into it. Uh, no, It's uh, no rot uh, at all and no decay. It's undivided, wholeness, without double-mindedness, as we heard Gail talk about this morning. I think that when you go through the Old Testament and you find guys who were wholehearted, or as David did, served God with a perfect heart, that's what it's talking about. Engineers know what integrity is. It means that the bridge looks solid. It is solid. Uh, I ride cycles, and we uh, there's one little old bridge that we ride all the time. And I, I would have bet it was the most solid bridge in our parish. I mean, it's, we rode across it all the time. Next thing I knew, it was condemned. And underneath it, it looked so solid. It was heavy concrete across a very small stream. But underneath it was full of cracks, and it was all rotten. But it looked strong. Uh, and so what was on the inside was not what was on the outside. And so it had to be replaced or it would have collapsed. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. It's the refusal to pretend about anything. I love the way Arthur Miller defines it in his play, The Crucible. Integrity is bigger than telling the truth. It's about being a certain kind of person. It's about being people who know who they are and uh, who we are and what we are. And it is about being true to what we are, even when it could cost us more than we should like to pay. Psalm 15, verse 2 said, He who walks in integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. I think speaking truth in your heart is a real good way to look at it. This is the end of side one. Please. Do you really believe what you say you believe? To live, do you really live consistently in light of what you believe regardless of the circumstances? There's a guy I know who when employees bring him an issue, some kind of a business problem. He says, don't tell me who's involved and don't tell me how much money's involved. Okay, now give me the problem. 
I'd like to say I do that. But it's saying that I believe the Bible is true and therefore the Bible applies, all of the Bible applies to all of my business. If we really believe it's the Word of God and it's our handbook for living, then it seems logical. If you believe the house is on fire, you get out of the house. If you believe you say the house is on fire, you're sitting there watching TV and they say, well, I thought you said the house on fire. Yeah, it is. This is a good show though. You don't really believe the house on fire. Because if, uh, if you did, you'd get out of there. You've got to live life from the inside out. Nothing else will last. If you were a, And I'm going to give you the key uh, to it. Because if you were a bridge, if this engineer were looking at you and you were a bridge, then obedience is the traffic that is crossing the bridge. And God says... The bridge is built to withstand all of His commands in all areas of life if you haven't done anything to compromise the integrity of it. You want to know whether you have integrity. That's why obedience is so critical because you believe God who is, he, is who He says He is and His Word is His Word. Then your approach to, to obedience to God's commands uh, and your own personal convictions uh, is going to exactly... Re- Reflect what, what it says. You're going to want to obey. You're going to think it's stupid not to. Looking not after your own interests, but also the interests of others, makes all the sense in the world. And to do anything else is silly. Redefining the commands like Saul did won't be an option because it'd be stupid. Obeying the commands is the smartest thing you can do. Delaying obedience, which is one of my favorites, tomorrow, coming across something, yeah, let me think about that one. Need to pay this guy back. Yeah, I'm going to pay him back. Just give me a little time. Delayed obedience. That got Balaam. If you ever want to study the effect of delayed obedience, study the life of the prophet named Balaam when Israel was headed headed into the Promised Land, and how he knew what God wanted him to do, but he just kept piddling around. Finally, found a way around it, and he paid the price. Not tolerating little hidden sins uh, that'll get you in trouble over the long term. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you seek desperately to please the lover of your soul? Knowing His commands are for your good and that He'll reward you? Because if you, any other approach to the, to the commands is, uh, and you're going to get into, uh, into trouble. But do you, most men I know, and I, I catch myself in this all the time, is that we run as close to the edge of per- permissible behavior as we possibly can. We exercise benign neglect over some commands. We kind of know they're there, but we choose not to really take a good look at them. Uh, rationalize ways around obedience based on the circumstances. Or search for counsel till you finally find some that will let you do what you want. All of that shows whether you have integrity because it's in your own heart. And like Gail said, <clears throat> if you want to know whether something has integrity, you've got to watch it over time. You've got to watch it over time. It's the only way. Uh, and that's why I love the study of the kings. Ever since uh, I heard up here, uh, Gail Jackson did a study of the kings, and I um, did a personal study of it. And what's neat is you get, this, you get to read a little bit about the beginning of their life, then you fast forward 25, 30, 40 years and see how they ended up. And it's scary. 
Uh, because the, the, uh, you can, you, in fact, if you ever find at the beginning of a king's life that he uh, obeyed the Lord, but not with a perfect heart, or not wholeheartedly, or in the same thing, or he left, he, he got rid of all the altars and obeyed, but he left the high places. Just so, you know, they were kind of unobtrusive, out in the countryside, not a big deal. Uh, a lot of people really stopped to pray to God there anyway. If you find either one of those two things, fast forward and his life collapses. Eventually the weight of the obedience. Some truck came across that was too much. And um, So to be wholehearted, <clears throat> you have to be pure, simple, corruption free. No mixed motives. And that's one of the lessons of the unrighteous steward that I love is that guy was not confused about who he was serving. He did not even pretend to serve his master. He only served himself. And that, I think, made him very shrewd. And we try to pull off serving both, and we can't do it. But you don't, have, you don't, you don't want to have mixed modes. You want to have one master, one focus, one audience, one passion, one commitment. God. It makes it so much simpler. It's an issue of the heart. Purely an issue of the heart. Do you have a heart after God's own heart? Like David did. And what is God's heart in? He's interested in two things above, it seems like, all else. His own glory, which is uh, our relationship with Him. Do we pursue Him? We want to make Him look good at all times. And people, our relationship with His inheritance. And those are the key things. Are God and the things of God your passion? In business, wherever. Like Paul said, this one thing I do. That takes a lot of attention out. A lot of the tension evaporates. Because gossiping, flirting, plagiarizing creates tension. Rationalization, guys, is work. I know, I do it all the time. It's a lot easier to just say, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to do it. And I'll tell you something else. If he's the one thing, no matter what he does in your life, like Job, your relationship with him is never at risk. If you do this to me, God, then we're through. I'm backing off. That's, that never happens if you have integrity. That's why Job said, yet though he slay me, well, I hope him. I'm going to hold on to my integrity. I believe he's a good God when things are going good. I believe he's a good God when things are going bad. I just wish I could figure out why he's doing this. Because it sure doesn't seem to be justified. And it's never questioning his sovereignty, character, or good intentions. You just don't do that. That's why David makes such a uh, great example of somebody with integrity. Uh, and because his performance, you know, and we, uh, if you study his life, he screwed up all the time. But it was his approach to obedience. He wanted to obey God. And you could tell that because whenever he got caught, boy, he came clean right away. But um, a great prayer. If you want to hear, you know, listening to Bob Foster last night, I was just sitting there going, gosh, I want to be like that when I'm 81. You know, I'll probably be somewhere eating soft ice cream, calling up my Jamaica-made mama. But I would love to have that heart to be able to say, I, don't go, I still don't go all by the pool. And uh, t- I, was, uh, I didn't kiss my wife until we got married. What a, I mean, what a testimony. But in, um, in way late in David's life, he, um, he uh, gives a prayer. 
First Chronicles 29, 10 through 19. And so this is at the end. Uh, he's, he's turning everything over to Solomon. And it is amazing prayer. And we don't have time to get, do it justice. In, in fact, uh, I, I'm going to just, just write that down. We won't read it right now. First Chronicles 29, 10 to 19. You have to read that if you want to know why he had integrity. Here he is at the end of his life, and you see it's the same thing he's writing when he was younger in, in the Psalms. He praises God. He admits God owns all. God's absolutely in control. God's a supplier. He's totally grateful for everything he has. He's unworthy and doesn't deserve God's good, the good treatment he gets from God. Everything's from God and for God. He acknowledges God expects obedience. He's totally dependent and just wants to please Him all the way to the end. And that's the key to his life. He understood all those things about God, and they're all in that prayer uh, from this old guy right before uh, he left. And uh, Daniel's another good example that I encourage you to look at. Uh, and uh, the famous verse is Daniel 6.4 where they tried to find some flaw in him and they just couldn't. They could not catch the guy. Uh, another, uh, not exactly a biblical example, but I love this story about Ted Williams. You know what a, a good uh, baseball player he was. In 1959 he had a pinched nerve and it really affected his batting average. And they gave him a contract because he'd been such a good player. Um, and probably would be again, which was the highest salary in baseball history, $125,000 a year, which is a lot of money in 1959. And he sent the contract back and asked for the largest pay cut allowed, 25%. And he said this, My feeling was that I was always treated fairly by the Red Sox when it came to contracts. Now they were offering me a contract I didn't deserve. So he cut his own salary by $31,000. First Peter advises the same thing on this issue. Keep a good conscience. So that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I'll tell you what, Ted Williams had a good conscience. He slept pretty good at night, I'll bet. First said First Peter 3.16. Uh, if you want to juxtapose somebody to David, uh, you ought to take a look at the, at the life of Amaziah, one of those kings that really I described him already. He's in 2 Kings, 4, 2 Kings 14, or you can read about him in 2 Chronicles 25. He's a guy who did right, but not with a whole heart. And um, interestingly, when you give someone obedience and you don't have relationship, you will end up resenting them. And so uh, that's what happened in Amaziah's life. You've got to have a relationship to give, obe- to, to give someone your obedience. You've got to have a love for that person. And... Uh, he did, uh, did not evidently have that, but he did give obedience all the way up uh, to a very painful point where he hired 100,000 soldiers for 100 talents. And uh, the prophet came and told him, don't, don't go to battle against Edom with these soldiers. I'm telling you, God doesn't want you to. And he asked the same question all of us would ask, what shall I do about the 100 talents which I've given to the troops of Israel? I already paid them. <laughs> but he sent them back. But it was a straw that broke the camel's back. And from that point on, he took some of the... He ended up uh, ignoring prophets, worshiping other gods, picked a fight with Israel he shouldn't have picked, and he lost, and he was killed by his own people. A few benchmarks of integrity. Um, we've already given some of them. Never let the end justify the means. 
Don't try to ever trade money for time. A lot of business guys will do that. We won't do anything we can pay for, get somebody else to do. God has all the money. Time is the only resource in the Bible that's listed as very limited. That's what He wants from you. Um, Yeah, um, don't trade money for time. God wants you to share the gospel, so give some money to a missionary so he shares the gospel. Give more money to your church. Uh, justify working long hours and never taking time to uh, tell anyone about Jesus Christ or disciple anybody, but you're giving tons of money away for God's work. It's something you can't trade. You can't make that trade. You need to, as Gail uh, already told us, fix your hope on the eternal. If you have not got a grip, good grip on this issue of gain, uh, everything Gail said is absolutely true. Uh, you need to keep a grateful heart before God. That's what David had. Uh, something, a benchmark of integrity is do you keep your commitments even when it hurts? We have signed some bad deals at our office. And I'll tell you, I just when when they come back to roost, I just start squirming and got to figure a way. I want to immediately figure a way out of them. I've got a uh, a situation with the fellow that owns our the business with me right now. Who uh, we bought it from my family in a very difficult transaction about 11 years ago. And uh, uh, this man is um, we don't see eye to eye on much. I'm in control, but he is uh, owns a good portion of the business. And uh, I made the mistake probably of making certain commitments to him 11 years ago, which I have lived up to for 11 years. And I am really rationalizing the dickens out of how to get out of those. And that's why I hated having to give this talk. <laughs> I really, I do, I hate, I hate ever meditating on integrity. It always costs me money. I thought it. <laughs> A benchmark of integrity is do you pursue your relationship with Jesus? I mean, that really is, uh, is so incredibly critical. In fact, uh, the secret to David's life of integrity is not some of the verses that talk about it, but it's verses like this in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I come and appear before God? Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That's the key to integrity, right there. Right there. You need to be, as Winston told us last night, we need to be transformed, not conformed. You don't want to get dissolved in the stream. That's what's going to happen. It's worse than just getting pushed downstream. You're just not identifiable as being any different from the stream if you have not got integrity and prove yourself to be blameless and innocent in this generation. It's really an issue of faith. Like so much of the Bible. Do you really believe God means what He says? Do you take Him at His word? If you do, then you're going to refuse to compromise. Because He knows your heart. So you're never going to put, you can't manipulate somebody who knows what you're thinking, what you're going to say before you say it. You can manipulate your wife. You can manipulate the business people, your employees, everybody. And that's what's so frustrating. You cannot manipulate God. Because he knows what you're thinking. And eventually, you will be asked to believe the Bible when it appears unreasonable. And that's usually when the bridge collapses. Or 
when you don't, when it does not appear to provide you what you think is your best interest. Those two things. When one of those happens, that's when, and a lot of times you can pull that off for a few years, but later on, something's going to happen. And, um, and then you'll know if you have integrity. When it seems, when the command appears unreasonable, or when it does not appear to be in your best interest. And that's where a lot of the uh, real lessons from the history of Israel are helpful. If you're going to hold on to your integrity, uh, a key requirement in, um, is something that Solomon and Peter taught. Uh, if you ever go spend any time in Ecclesiastes, uh, it's a great book. Ecclesiastes 2 is a good observation. And in that chapter, uh, Solomon says, I tried pleasure, I tried accomplishments, I tried possessions and wealth, and I tried fame. And then he says, Thus I considered all the activities which my hands had done and the labor with which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity. He said, Man, I tried everything else. And it came up crappers. He said, I could, it's fun. You know, you can, you can have fun, but you can't live for fun. It won't give you life meaning. It won't give you fulfillment. It won't fill the emptiness. It's, there's no life there. And you, you fast forward all the way into the New Testament in, 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 um, in, uh, in John chapter 6. And I love uh, this conversation. Jesus gives one of his famous crowd-thinning sermons. <laughs> Unless you eat my blood, my body and drink my flesh, you have no part of me. And, they're, and understandably, they're all going, Yeesh. this is a hard teaching. <laughs> um, and so uh, they start to just drift away. They don't reject him, but they just start to drift away. It's an interesting, if you want to read the, uh, what happens after he delivers, it's very difficult to understand and swallow a sermonette. Uh, read the very, starting at about uh, verse 60 of John 6. I pick up at 66, and as and it says this in John six sixty six. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you don't want to go also, do you? He said, you going too? Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He says three things. If we leave you, then we're going somewhere else. Where else are we going to go? He, like Solomon, he knew the rest in, came up empty. Pursuing wealth, pleasure, fame. He said he'd already turned all that away when he came out of the cave with his hands up. So whenever you walk away from Jesus, you're walking towards something. He says nothing else has any answers, so there's nowhere else to go. Unless you come to that conclusion, you will walk away from Jesus. At some point... That's why you have to make that decision on gain. He said, Jesus had the words of life. He said, all this other stuff might be fun. It might keep me busy. But I can't build a life on it. I can't build a life. He says, you're the only place where life has meaning. You've got, you got answers. The emptiness is gone. I have peace and joy. That isn't anywhere else. I mean, guys, I've, I've pursued a lot of stuff. And it only lasts about a minute. Lasts about a minute. And they understood he was from God. And if he was from God, any questions? Where else are you going to go? If this is from God, any questions? Where else are you going to go? And something else you're going to need is a refined and sensitive conscience. 
Because your hand is going to go into the cookie jar. And you want to catch yourself. You need to invite men into your life like Nathan could walk into David's life. I love the, uh, in Matthew 7, the discussion of the splinter and the log. And the thing I like about it is the fact that I can see your splinters and I can't see my logs. That's what's amazing. You, you don't see them. And you need other guys to see these huge gaping holes in your life and to call you on it. And you're going to have to be a little transparent for them to do that. But you're going to need that. David needed it. We'll need it. Because, as Jeremiah said, our, our hearts are des- more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. The easiest person I can manipulate is me. And so I better have somebody else who is a little bit, uh, just a little bit tougher. I want to fear God, and this is something that uh, is incredible. I love how Jacob described God. He, he, call, he called it the name, one of the times he called God the fear of Isaac. The guy that Isaac was scared to death of. Not of his intentions, but of his power. You better, you better be afraid of standing before God, as has been described to you guys. Because if, that whole, if you think that uh, God is all love, and He's one-dimensional, you're in for a sad surprise. Because none of us are. Why do we think He is? He is love, but He's also just, and He's going to call us to account. We need to walk with Him. And this is really critical, and this is probably what David got most right. It's like when you describe Enoch, we think we have to do so much for God, and really most of it is just walking with Him. Says he needed to walk with God and he was not, God for God took him. What else did he do? That was it. He just walked with God. God didn't have any, evidently nothing worth recording. Abraham didn't do a whole lot, as far as I can tell, but he walked with God. So, uh, and there are going to be some costs if you do integrity, and Winston's really covered that. It's going to cost you your life. There's a lot of other things, but they're, they're less than that. And so I'm going to, uh, I need to wrap up. Let me give you just a few of the rewards of integrity that are available to us. Most of all is the reward that God promises that He ta- that Jesus told Peter about. I mean, yeah, much more. We've already seen some of that. But you'll have peace, guys, in your life. You won't wrestle with how to get around the commands if it's that you know if you just do them. It's a, it's a lot easier. I mean, it eliminates a lot of options and a lot of struggles. Uh, Proverbs 19.1, It's better to be a poor man who walks in integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. It's just, you're better off. Regardless of your assets. Proverbs 27, A righteous man who walks in integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. You can leave a heritage if you have integrity. And there's example after examples in history and of, uh, good. It's not guaranteed. And it may not be your own kids, but you will leave a heritage. Psalm 7, 8. O Lord, the Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to the righteousness and my integrity that is in me. When you stand before God and give an account, it will go easier on you. <laughs> in fact, uh, it won't go well at all if you don't have integrity. Psalm 15. Who lives with God? Who abides with God? People with integrity. Read the psalm. It's all, it's all a, a description of integrity. So one of the things you'll get is intimacy with God. And guys, you need to get the picture. God is incredibly interesting. 
And the better you get to know him, the more you're going to like him. He is the opposite of boring. And, um, and he's just like, if you've got somebody you like to be around, uh, there's no comparison to liking to be around God. It's just fascinating. It's like going on a vacation to someplace you've never been. And that's a pretty neat reward. Um, Psalm 41.12 Thou dost uphold me in my integrity. Proverbs 10.9 He who walks in integrity walks securely. When you are obeying God, you are incredibly secure. Uh, I'll never forget one time a tree fell in the house and somebody said, well, you don't seem very upset about it. I said, yeah, finally something happened I didn't bring on myself. <laughs> I was secure. I knew it was absolutely for my best. The water was not muddy. It was easy. It was easy. Uh, it preserves me, Psalm twenty-five, twenty-one, and it guards me. Uh, so guys, I, I commend you to uh, take all of this book, apply it to all of your business, and uh, you will not regret it. But do not underestimate uh, the cost and the, the, how heavy some of the trucks are. They're going to come across your bridge. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you do not leave us uh, to live this life alone, uh, that you don't place a load on us and walk away, but you're there to help us. You're inside of us. You're providing us the power, the desire, all the help we need. We just have to say yes as an act of the will and just make the commitment. Uh, Drop all the other alternatives. No other options but you your word, and our obedience. And we do thank you uh, for the time to get away to a place like this. Think about what's going on. Uh, make some changes so that when we hit the streets, things are different, uh, and we don't make some of the mistakes some of those kings made. In Christ's name, amen.